So tonight we turn once again to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. 2 Kings 4, 38 through 44. You know, this section of scripture is filled with so many interesting things. Some things which seem bizarre, some things which seem amazing, some things which seem beyond the realm of possibility. I was aware that here recently, one of the benedictions that I gave, I often, if you didn't notice in the bulletins, morning and evening, we have a different benediction from the scriptures each service, and we usually use one for about a month before we switch. One of the ones that we've used in one of the services was Philippians 4.19. That particular benediction reads, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The world looks at that benediction and asks the question, really? Then why do some Christians lose their people to martyrdom due to persecution? Why do others get divorced or go into debt or have cancer? Why do some believers starve to death in sub-Saharan Africa? Is God the great provider or not? In this passage, we're reminded God is a provider, a great provider. But let us hear the stories that are told, true stories in the life of Elisha and the prophets, beginning with verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gores and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Again, some very interesting stories, a reminder of God's grace and provision in times of need. Let us turn to God briefly in prayer. Lord, give us the ability to understand these words for us tonight. Give us ears to hear them hearts to understand them. I pray that you might help us to apply these words to our everyday lives, and Lord, that we might be faithful witnesses to your provision and your grace. I pray that things spoken here, thought here, done here would be consistent with your word or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Sometimes in my conversations with Art in my office, we have asked the question, when should a prospective pastor bring up the financial package that the church is offering? I have now been called to three different churches in my 20-year ministry, or over 20, I guess, 24-year ministry now. 
And my experiences with calls have been rather interesting. When you get called by a church or they consider you as their pastor, you go through all this interview process, and each church seems to have a different process. They go through interviews, they listen to your sermons, they go through uh, different things that you've responded to a list of questions. There might be a form that they're looking at with all kinds of responses and theological positions on all kinds of different things. They look at your experiences. Some churches even look at what your wife is like or what her gifts are. I remember when my father was looking for a church, they asked if the wife could play the piano or the organ. And when my dad said no, they said, well, we need somebody else. But what do you do about the needs of your family in this call? When is it appropriate for a pastor to consider the financial package to feed his family? And I think my position in arts is this. You don't bring it up until they do. Why? Well, who really puts the bread on the table? Is it a church that has everything all together and has the financial package to offer with wonderful benefits to the church? Is it the, the idea that you go to a church because it has this great financial package? Do you go to a church only that you think can actually pay for the package they're seeking to offer you? What is it that you do? Well, again, what is the question? Is the question, do I only serve those who can afford to hire me? Obviously, that's not the case. That's not the calling of a pastor. Do you say, I'm only going to go to a church that I know has enough finances in order to pay the package they need to provide for my needs? Well, if that was the case, then a lot of these prophets in the Old Testament would have denied the calling that God had given them. The question is not, what is the financial package that I'm going to get as a pastor of this church? The question is, who really will put the bread on my table? For the people of Israel in Elisha's day, this wasn't just a figurative question. This was a literal question. They were asking in their days, who is going to put the bread on my table today? Not just for the year or for the month or for the week or to give me the money to go to the grocery store and buy the food. They were literally asking the question from an agrarian society, how am I going to eat today? And that's where we start. You see, God is offering them, first of all, in the first story, protection from a dangerous supply. And secondly, provision with an inadequate supply. First of all, the protection from a dangerous supply. Again, coming back to the passage and the text at hand, we have to understand the situation. Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. Now, if you know anything about Gilgal, you know there's a lot of history there. This was the place in which the Israelites were circumcised after they crossed the Jordan River and began to conquer the land. This was the place where there was covenant renewal. This was also the place where there were idols, particularly in Joshua's day. But again, if we were to look at our recent history in chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Evidently, Gilgal was the seat of the school of prophets that were sitting first under Elijah and then under Elisha. 
But look at the circumstances. There was a famine in the land. There was suffering. And of course, this suffering is not true that every famine is directly related to a particular judgment upon God's people. However, if we were to fast forward to chapter 8, verse 1, we would read these words. Elisha said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. You see, this famine was from the Lord. If you read very carefully these stories put together in 2 Kings, you know that in this section of Scripture they're not necessarily chronological they may more necessarily, by the author's design, be more topical. And so here it is. There's a little confusing. Uh, this Shunammite woman, we've already run across her and the one that uh, she had a, a son who was restored to life through God's design and through Elisha's care for this woman. And yet here we're reminded this is a section in this context where all the people in the land in this day were experiencing a famine that God had brought. Now, why does God bring famine? Well, in this case, it seems to be one of the curses from the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read of one of the curses that God has given the people of Israel if they fail to follow his commands. This is just one of a long laundry list of curses that God gives it says, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You see, the olives would drop from the tree because they did not have enough fertilization from the water that they needed. And here it was, God brought famine, particularly, evidently, because of the wickedness of the people of Israel. You know the circumstances in the days of Elijah and Elisha, what happened? The family of King Ahab, he and his sons after him, were worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroths. They were doing wicked and abominable things. We have some of the great contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and yet here we're reminded that by and large, the people of God had gone astray. They were worshiping first the golden calves that Jeroboam had instituted in Bethel and Dan, and now they were worshiping the Baals of the land, and here it is, God designed for famine to come, particularly as a judgment of the people of God. And even God's faithful people suffer the consequences of the sins of others. Do not think that just because you're faithful, you will escape some of these consequences regarding God's judgment. And yet here's the situation. We know from the last part of this passage, there's about a hundred prophets there. These are a hundred students sitting at the feet of Elisha. And these prophets are ready to eat one day. This is just one day's situation. 
And Elisha says to one of the sons of the prophets, to the servant there, probably one of the students, it doesn't say it's Gehazi, his normal servant, he says, set on the large pot. Of course, we know it takes a large pot to feed 100 people, doesn't it? Set on the large pot, boil stew for the sons of the prophets. This was an everyday thing. They're having uh, their regular uh, church gathering here, uh, church potluck dinner, right? So they're coming together and they're, they're trying to gather whatever they can. This servant is given the duty here. And so from sincerity, this servant seeks to supply the need. He's been told to go cook the dinner. And so he goes out to the field to gather herbs and finds a wild vine and gathers from it his lap full of wild gourds and came out and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. So in sincerity, he's seeking to supply the need and preparing to minister to the people by preparing dinner. In fact, he's to be commended because even though there's very little, there's a famine, they may not know where all their supplies are going to come from, he is very imaginative and intuitive, and he goes out and finds what's available. He uses the provisions that are available. In fact, he's found here some wild gores. Now, it's interesting. If you were to study the etymology of this word, you know there is some disagreement over to what exactly was here. Some people call it wild cucumbers. In fact, other people remind us uh, I think the, the family name from which they said this came from was the Citrullus colcynthus. Of course, you know what that is, right? They think that this might be a yellow melon that comes out from these uh, vines. And this particular melon, uh, they said, produces uh, a laxative. Uh, other people say that it actually creates a colic sense. Uh, this was the 19th century language. Creates a colic sense that attacks the nerves. So here's this servant. Goes out with sincerity to provide for the needs of the people at the instruction of Elisha. He's out there. He finds some food. Maybe a cucumber. Maybe this yellow melon. Whatever it is. He slices it up. Puts it in the, in the, um, in the pot with the stew. And he goes out to serve the hundred prophets. He's trusting that this supply is of the Lord. Doesn't seem like he's intentionally done anything wrong. And yet what happens? There's death in the pot. Let's stop for just a minute. Stopping here to consider the circumstances. It's interesting here. There's one commentary, one author who says here, it's a reminder in just these verses, 38 through 44, actually, that eight times we see the word or the verb to eat. This is a reminder here that it was an everyday battle to put food on the table. You see, these aren't stories about some vastly important event in the history of the people of Israel. This is a God providing for the everyday needs of his faithful remnant. Remember, during these times, there aren't very many believers in Israel. Most of them are out taking their sacrifices to offer them either in Bethel at the false gods that Jeroboam had instituted or to the gods of Baal and the land around them and perhaps to nobody. And yet it's an everyday battle during a famine for even God's prophets to eat dinner. 
And there's an extra difficulty here of not just providing for your family, but providing for a whole school of people. I have to say, if, if it was our job to provide dinner for all the students at my son's school on an everyday basis, this would be a challenge. And here it is. God is intervening in the daily life of these people. But again, back to the story. Verse 40, they poured out some for the men to eat, but while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. Now, of course, we, knew, we know they probably knew this very early because it had a very bitter taste. In fact, if it was one of these two things, the wild cucumber that's talked about, or this melon from this plant that I'm not going to say the name of again, uh, then, then here it is, it's very bitter and it causes great stomach agony and pains. And in fact, both of these plants or both of these vegetables here, if they're consumed in great quantity, would be lethal. They would be fatal. And so there really is death in the pot. You would expect now to see some teaching and instruction about God and his provision. But instead, all we get is a sign. He said, then bring flour. He threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Here he is shaking life into the pot in the form of flour. Now why? What is this? Don't we expect here to see some great teaching or some great reminder that God is a providing God or that God is a saving God and all these different things? Why this sign of the flower? And I don't have all the answers. But I do know this. God is a God of signs, isn't he? In fact, the signs here are very clear. Even in Jesus' day, what did Jesus use when he was healing individuals? Sometimes we wonder, why did God stick his fingers in somebody's ear? Why did he touch saliva to somebody's tongue? Why did he touch people and speak to others? Why did he do these things? Perhaps it's, as one commentator writes, to place on our peg a memory of God's provision with such illustration that we will never forget it. Why is this story in scriptures? You know, I wondered, what happens when you're trying to bake my favorite thing, one of my favorite things in all the world, chocolate chip cookies? I love my wife's chocolate chip cookies. Whenever she asks me or asks the family, she says, I'm going to bake some cookies. What kind do you want me to make? And she knows I'm going to say chocolate chip cookies. They're my favorite. She just makes the best. I'm sorry, other people in the church, she makes the best chocolate chip cookies of anybody that I've ever eaten. And she's taught my children how to make chocolate chip cookies. I could probably make them. I don't try, but my kids do a good job. But what happens if you were to mix up the measurements for the salt and the sugar? Yes, you put salt in chocolate chip cookies, a, a pinch of salt, so to speak, and you put a lot more sugar in. What happens if you get those backwards? Well, it makes them inedible, doesn't it? But does it ruin the generosity of making them? Does it ruin the thought behind the maker to the ones that they wanted to please who were going to receive them and eat them? Does it ruin the love that the baker has for the recipients? You see, this reminds me, this passage here 
here's this servant. I can, I can see the circumstances. And, and this is so picturesque, isn't it? They're, they're gathering together in the 10-year reunion of this event. And they're, and they're saying to each other, do you remember the day that, that so-and-so went out to gather the, the wild gourds and we all ate of the stew and said, there's death in the pot. Do you remember that? And, and do you remember how Elisha came and threw flour in the pot and then everything was wonderful? You see, we can serve the Lord with all sincerity as servants with a servant's heart. And with great wisdom and even frugality. And yet we can make a mess of everything. You know, I can think of those times when either I or my children and our family had all in sincerity to help one another and just made a mess of things. I can also think of those times when I thought I was doing all the right things to help people in the church and it just was a mess. But God can bring life even through our messes, can't he? God can give us the right ingredients to bring life when there's only death. This reminds us that we cannot save anybody. We cannot provide even the daily sustenance for, for anybody apart from God's grace and God's gift of life. God is the one who protects us from even a dangerous supply of food in a time of famine. But perhaps the next story is even more amazing. Just three verses in our scripture. A man comes from Baal Shalisha. I don't even know where that particular it, uh, village is. Baal Shalisha, but it does tell you one thing. It's a reminder he's coming from a place where they worship the false god, Baal. And they're bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. When you first read this, you think, wow, he's brought a lot of stuff. 20 loaves of bread. Now, if we were to go to the store and buy 20 loaves of bread, we might be able to feed at least a little bit 100 people. But these weren't the kind of loaves of bread we get at the store. These were little barley loaves that could feed very little. In fact, it might be evident here by this thing, one person in one sack had this food. They needed to feed 100 people. That's not very much. This inadequate supply, however, is an encouragement for this remnant of believers. Why? Well, here's this guy. He's anonymous. We don't know who he is. He's a farmer, presumably. He brings Elisha the bread of the first fruits. Now, if you know what that means, these first fruits were the first fruits that were supposed to be given to the priests or the Levites. They were supposed to be given in joy that God was giving them a harvest, and God owned these first fruits, and they were to feed the Levites and the priests. And yet here they are in this land, bypassing this particular system and instead bringing it to the prophets. Why? Well, because the priests in the land were serving the aforementioned golden calves that Jeroboam had set up, or the faithless, idolatrous people who worship Baal. And if they gave it to these priests that were in the land, they would be giving to those who were opposing God and whom God had already designed to bring judgment on by this famine. So here in the midst of this is one faithful farmer in a faithless land. 
And he knows that these prophets, somehow he knows that these prophets are true prophets of the true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so here is one man bringing the first fruits to supply the needs of these religious prophets who are seeking to honor God. What an encouragement. And Elisha then says, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? In other words, it's just not enough. It's not enough here. I can't. It's just silly for me to put out 20 loaves of barley bread, fresh ears of corn, whatever it is, just that this farmer brought. It's just ludicrous for me to set this down and expect to be able to feed everybody in this place. So Elisha repeats, give them to the men that they may eat. You see, here's the promise of the Lord. For thus says the Lord. This is the promise. They shall eat and have some left. Now when you first read this passage, how many of you might have thought, well, that's great. God is promising always that God will supply the needs of his people, particularly bread in times of famine. That's not the promise. God doesn't say, I'm always going to give bread to the starving of my people. You know, if he were to have said that, then the person who asked the question, how can there be a God when there's starving people in Africa, that would be a legitimate question, wouldn't it? But no, in that time, in that place, in that circumstance, the promise is they will eat and have some left. The promise is this, there is more than enough now, today, with these barley loaves and these ears of corn. And then what happened? They shall eat and have some left, verse 44. So he said it before them. They ate and they had some left. All that the word of God had to say. The fulfillment is just as the Lord has said. And this really is one of the constant bombardments of unbelievers, isn't it? If God exists, then why are there starving children in Africa? You've heard that question. If God exists, then how come there are people with disease? How come there are believers who suffer? How come? And you could, the questions go on and on, don't they? But since when did God say he would feed every hungry child? Since when did God say, I will not let anybody die? I don't know about you, but I've known a lot of people who die. And I know that every person in this room, unless Jesus were to come back, all of us are going to taste and experience death. And so this question, is there really a God if there are starving children in Africa, is simply an ignorant or an unfair question. Because God's promise of provision is not to provide everyone, or not even to provide every single, in every single circumstance, food for the starving, health for the diseased, or recovery for those who experience tragic circumstances. But God's promise is that in Christ, we would have our need for salvation met. The promise of the Lord is this, when he speaks, it is fulfilled. 
if God's design is at a particular time and place to provide for the needs of those people at that time and place, it will happen. This is a trust not in Elisha's ability to provide for the hundred prophets, but in God's word, thus saith the Lord. And of course, behind the scenes, we see the type and the anti-type, don't we? Perhaps you've noticed it. The servant says, how can I set this before a hundred men? In Jesus' day, there's 5,000 men in one circumstance, 4,000 men in another circumstance, plus women and children, perhaps thousands upon thousands of people. In one case, there are just five loaves and the fish that are offered there, two fish. In the other case, there are seven loaves and the fish that are offered there. And in both circumstances, the, the question is either implied or directly asked, how in the world can this feed this people? Exactly like in the time of Elisha. Elisha had a prediction that these feeding of the, of the uh, 100 would take place. Thus saith the Lord, give to the men that they may eat. They shall eat and have some left. He predicted it. But in Jesus, in the anti-type, in the New Testament, here it's not just the prediction according to God's word, it's the production according to the power of Christ himself. And there's a feeding of not 100, but thousands, with even smaller number of provisions. And the indication here is, likely what was left over was even greater than what was left over for this hundred. You see, God is reminding us, he's the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the same provider. He's the same one that just here is looking to the Savior who will provide for our needs. And then in the New Testament is looking back to say, even now someone greater than Elisha is here. As they reminisce about this story in the Old Testament. The remnant was supplied the bread that gave them life. Not only here, but in the manna in the wilderness. Not only here, but in Elijah being fed by the ravens. Not only here, but earlier on in chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Kings, when this remnant of a hundred prophets was hidden by fifties in the caves, and Obadiah risked his life to feed them and provide for them, even as he was in the house of wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. You see, these feedings... These feedings did not save the people who ate for all eternity, but they did signify the giver of life and the provision of God. And they always point back to this because it was the word of God that promised them their provision that day. It reminds us that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Years ago now, John Moon wrote this song called Jehovah Jireh. The lyrics of this song is Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. He will give his angels charge over me. Jehovah Jireh cares for me. Did you know that Jireh does not mean provide? Jireh actually means God will see. The literal meaning of Jireh is God will see. 
when Abraham saw in the thicket the lamb or the, the, the ram that was provided in place of his son Isaac, then he was reminded that God would provide. But first of all, that word provide is a recognition that God sees the need of the people. And what we should get out of this story is this. Whether it's the everyday life that we live and the circumstances that drive us even to despair, or whether it's the need that we have to be forgiven of our sins and live for all eternity, God is the one who sees and provides for his remnant. He has provided the lamb. Let us feast together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for your provision. We thank you that on that moment, in these two days, you provided first from death in the pot, and then you provided food so that they could eat. Lord, we thank you that you've given us Jesus Christ, that we might live, and that when we feed upon Christ spiritually, we have eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that you are the provider and the God who sees. In Jesus' name.